Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome. This is Unheard the channel that tries to avoid herd mentality and encourage independent thinking wherever we can find it. As you probably know, we have done a whole bunch of interviews over the course of the pandemic. We spoke to Professor Neil Ferguson way back in the beginning, uh, Devi Sridhar, Susan Mickey, people on all sides of the pandemic controversy. And we also spoke to the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration. In fact, they're first interview was here at Unheard, and that is Jay Bhattacharya, Sunetra Gupta, and Martin Kuldorf. That has been hugely controversial. People have very strong opinions about it. And one of the signatories of that document, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, is here in London. So we had to take the opportunity to grab him and have a chat with him. So he's here with me now. Hello, Jay. Hi, Freddie. Thanks for having me. So, first of all, give us just a sense of what this last year and a half has been like for you. I mean, are you now some sort of pariah in the streets of Stanford University? I mean, what happens? Do people throw tomatoes at you as you walk down the street? That exact, no, it's nothing like that. Um, I mean, it, it's, it has been very strange. My, my life in many ways has been overturned. I, I was a, before this, I was a I mean, relatively quiet academic. Um, I'd never written an op-ed before. I had never uh, appeared on TV before, I don't know, maybe once, and I'd never, I mean, I think I'd done one court case as an expert before, and now uh, I get, it's, it is, it's, it, my life did overturn. So in that sense, it's been um, a whirlwind. Uh, I, am I a pariah? I don't think I'm a pariah. I think, I, I mean, I think I have a, a view of what the evidence has said and what the right policy should be. Um, before the epidemic, I studied and worked on health policy that's what I'm doing now. I'm doing my job. Um, and uh, before the epidemic, I would say some things that would be unpopular with some people and uh, popular with others. And you know what what on my findings are. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm at Stanford. is It has been challenging, but much more challenging than I would have anticipated a, a great university to be. To have views that are not necessarily aligned with other people at the university. Um, but I'm hoping that gets healed. In what respect has it been challenging? Well, I mean, it's it's. Um, uh, I mean, just to give you some sense of this, uh, I've managed to have my views platformed, if you will, in many, many settings. I've, I've managed to give talks at uh, uh, many other universities, but I have yet to give a talk, a public talk at Stanford. Have you been invited and then uninvited, or is it just the invitation hasn't been forthcoming? There have been attempts to try to organize a, a debate, which haven't come off. It's, it's just been, it's been disappointing. 
So is, do you feel like the university is embarrassed of your views and want to kind of keep it low profile? I mean, I, I'm embarrassed of my views. I mean, they're, they're, they're in principle not supposed to take a view. I mean, academic freedom means essentially neutrality. Uh, you let professors disagree with each other. Um, so, and in practice, in in practice, it's been it's been challenging. I mean, I think uh, it's been a very polarized environment. Uh, I've lost friends, but I also gained friends, people I didn't know before. So, let, you mentioned your views. Let's get straight into that. So, when we spoke, when you first signed this declaration, as I understand it, the policy you wanted was so-called focus protection. So that would be some kind of process of shielding vulnerable people and letting everyone else go about their business. Since all of the months that have happened since then and everything we've learned about vaccines and new strains and everything else, do you still think that's what should have happened? Um, so first let me just say, that is actually what has happened after the vaccines. Right? So what happened after the vaccines first became available was that uh, there were many, most places, uh, the most sensible places, deployed it to protect the vulnerable. Right, because there weren't enough doses, so they were used on older populations. Uh, there's a thousand-fold difference in the risk of this disease as far as mortality goes and any other severe outcomes, uh, where the oldest face a very high risk versus, versus, the, versus the young face much less risk. Um, and so it was sensible, they, they, the, as soon as a perfect mechanism of focus protection became available, that is what most countries and most locations did, is they used it to protect the vulnerable. At, at the same time, um, there was a mix of policies. Some places, after they, after and during, while they were, had done that, opened up. Um, other places continued some of the some of the restrictions. Um, so I think uh, we wrote the Great Bank in October. The vaccines came available in December, and in effect, large parts of the world adopted the Great Barrington strategy when the vaccines came available. So the, I guess that's one way of thinking about it. But what you actually proposed at the time, this was pre-vaccine was this focus protection. So if, if governments around the world had followed your advice right. back in last October or before, talk me through what should have happened, what you would have liked to see happen. So on, on the one side, let's, let's talk about how to protect the vulnerable in the absence of the vaccine. Um, you, there, I think what, what I was hoping for, and, and I think just, uh, the, the conversation got started but then got killed in the politics of it and the controversy of it, was a creative engagement from public health officials about how to do that. Right? And it's gonna be different for different people in different settings, right? So in care homes, um, where like 40% of the deaths have happened uh, from, from COVID in the United States, uh, the, 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 I think one of the reasons why that is the case is that, uh, especially in the early days of the epidemic, people didn't understand that, that the old, oldest were the most vulnerable. They, sh they should have, just looking at the Chinese data, but they didn't. And so instead of uh, trying to protect that vulnerable group, the thought was, well, let's keep hospital beds open because that's the scarce resource. So we'll send COVID-infected patients back to the nursing homes, opening up a hospital bed. Right? It was a mistake in an understanding the nature of the disease that led to the mistake in strategy that led to the catastrophic harm. So that, that's a failure focus. But I want to hear what you think should have happened. Right. Okay. So like I'll give you one example in nursing homes, right? So uh, what we knew you know, in October was that, uh, that staff members of hospitals that work in, in, co in nursing homes and, co and care homes that work in multiple places were responsible for bringing COVID up on the outside into the nursing homes. 
So here's here's an idea. You could you could uh, you could take uh, the, the 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 occupation of being a of, of someone who works in a care home and turn it into a residential occupation, right? So you're there for a month. Uh, you don't you don't go out. You just live and work there. You, you get paid a bonus, of course, for this, and we've paid incredible sums of money. But uh, so so that you reduce the amount of staff turnover, and the amount of staff staff moving back and forth from the community to the care homes, right? So that, I mean, that's one idea. I, I, what I was hoping for is like a lot of creative ideas to come around this. I'd like another one with like uh, people living in, in the community in multi-generational homes. In Los Angeles, for instance, there's Hispanic communities, there's lots of multi-generational homes. Um, we used in, in, the, in Los Angeles, we used hotel rooms, we made them available to homeless people. But you could have also made them available to older people who live in multi-generational homes, who, where, where a younger person living in the home comes, comes in and says, oh, I might have been exposed. Well, then you call the hotline and say, okay, I, I need a, a, a temporary hotel room. Uh, another idea that, that, that I think should have been adopted much earlier is um, when the, the rapid antigen test first came available, we should have made them very widely available for free. I mean, I think a lot of the, the hesitation in making them available was that uh, they wanted to do testing and tracing. They wanted public reporting of every case identified. But for many people, the public reporting, ha- if, you're, if you're poor, you can't afford to list, miss a day of work, it's, it's, gonna, be, it's gonna be challenging to wanna, wanna report. A lot, of, a lot of people are reluctant. If instead you make the rapid antigen test with, with the lateral flow assays available so that people can make the decision themselves, okay, I'm, I'm positive, I won't go visit my grandma today. Um, okay. the, I mean, things like that. Like the, just a very, uh, you need to think differently about what the goal is. If the goal is focus protection, you adopt a very different set of policies than if the goal is testing, tracing, identifying, quarantining. So that one of, one of the many criticisms people levy against it is that you never fully detailed how exactly this focus protection would work, and you've given us some ideas there. But you, you say that you were kind of hoping others would take up the yeah. the lead, and they didn't. So let's just say that someone had succeeded and devised a regime where you could at least basically protect vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. What happens then? How long would they have been in that situation? I mean, it sounds very extreme with sort of grandparents sitting in hotels and poor you know, cleaners in, in, in old people's homes living on campus. How long would you have expected that to go on for? I mean, I, I, mean, I guess it depends on, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the idea wasn't to like throw people in a concentration camp, like old people in a concentration camp to leave them there. The, the idea was to give them resources so that they could protect themselves as, as they saw fit, but they could make trade-offs in their lives based on what they valued. But what sort of length of time? Because at one point you were talking about three months. Yeah, Did I mean, you stand I thought, by so, that? Like, I, th- I think um, uh, it would depend on the extent to which the rest of society opens up, right? So the, the, um, it is a biological fact that the disease will become endemic. Like it's headed toward that in any case. Exactly the length of time depends on how restricted people are in their interactions with one another, right? The, lo- the more you restrict society, the longer it takes to get to that, the longer you need to do those kinds of focus protections, sort of techniques in order to get now. Um, like, you know, with the vaccine, of course, it's trans- you transformed that debate, right? It's much, much more, it's much less of a acute trade-off. It's given us a mechanism of more or less Ideal focus protection without having to without having to like uh, uh, you know go, go forever. But was it supposed to be a temporary thing? Because at the time, yeah. herd immunity was what everyone was talking about. Now, 
herd immunity seems very hard to achieve and no one quite knows exactly what they mean. But at the time, as I understood it, it was, okay, the non-vulnerable people could go out there and get herd immunity. And once that had been achieved, the vulnerable people could come out safely again. Do you now think, in retrospect, that was realistic? Okay, so I think, I think that there's a mistake in people, the way that people understand what herd immunity means. It, back then and now, it means the same thing. And it, what, what people think about herd immunity now, I see this in the press, I even see this among scientists who should know better. Herd immunity is not a synonym for zero COVID. It does not mean the disease has gone away. It, what it means is the disease has become endemic. It means, means the disease has a, an RT of one, right? So every person that gets the disease infection infects one other person. It, there's, it, it sits fluctuating around at, 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 some, lo, at some level in the population. Um, it's the contrast with herd immunity is a vastly sharply rising number of cases where each new person that gets it infects multiple people. So do you think you would have achieved that endemic state after, say, three months? I mean, what's, what's I the answer to the... Well, I mean, I, there's a lot of uncertainty around that. I mean, I think it's certainly possible. It depends on exa exactly how, you know, because it's not just uh, a policy, right? So it's, like, it's also a question of fear, right? If people are scared to interact with everybody else, it, it'll take longer, even if, you don't, even if you don't have a policy. So the answer to that question is really hard. It would depend on people's perception of the, of the danger they, they face, the danger of the disease. I do think that if you told people the facts about what the disease does, right? So if you're a child, the disease is less dangerous than the flu. That is a, as far as mortality goes, that is a, just a fact about the disease. To me, that fact made me much more relieved in my own personal life because I didn't have to worry about the well-being so much about the well-being of my children as far as this disease is concerned, and well-being in lots of other ways, but not, not, not as far as this disease is concerned. Um, and so I wanted them and I still want them to live normal childhoods for my, my own kids. I'm just trying to get this timeline, this sort of parallel but universe see, I where we... I can't answer that, right? So I can't answer, I don't know the, I don't know the answer because it depends on too many things that I don't have the answer to. But what I do know is that if a government induces fear in a population, if a government formally locks down, then it will take much longer to, to get to that point. Where the disease no longer no longer is is, uh, is 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 a level where we can manage it without having to overturn all of society. So some things have happened since last October, and one of them is new variants. Yeah. We had the so-called alpha variant coming out of this country and Delta coming out of India. How, what happens to your focus protection plan? when there's a new variant, does that affect it? Does that? It does, yeah. So like it depends on the nature of the new variant, right? So um, the, the, uh, the variants to date have been, I think, marginally more infectious, um, probably a little less deadly. But the key thing is that they don't evade entirely the previously established protection from either previous infection or from the vaccines. If you had the vaccines, or if you've had previous infection recovered, you are still protected against severe disease, even against the variants. If you had a variant that didn't have that property, then of course, then, then, then the, the, the calculation would have to change. But so you're saying that your herd that had gone out and got infected early on, whilst the vulnerable people were protected, 
would still have been protected against severe disease and death yeah. from subsequent variants. That's your claim. Well, I mean, I think that's the, that's the evidence thus far. Um, I mean, like, you know, it's possible that another another uh, now, the, the, but then there's also like more complicated uh, other complications, right? So, like, if the, can you if you are vaccinated, can you still pass the disease on? And we're seeing some breakthrough infections. I think the rate is not enormously high. It's like, I don't know, I'm not, you can argue me into 2%, you can argue me into 4%, I don't know, some number. Uh, it's, it's small. Um, same thing with previously infected people and reinfections, you know, I don't know, 1% to 1%. I mean, it's just some, some number. And of course, it's going to vary over time. Um, I mean, the, the, it's very clear that, in, that the protection you get from immunity against the disease, either vaccine-induced or Natural immunity is not permanent, but that's to be expected given that this is a coronavirus and that's, what's, that's what happens to other coronaviruses. Um, so the, 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 the disease will come and go, just as you would expect from an endemic, endemic disease. Uh, it's, going to, it's an RNA virus, so it's going to mutate. Um, will it mutate to escape prior immunity? I don't know. I think, I'm not, like, my read on the, on the scientific literature is that people tend to be skeptical that that will happen. The question really to me, because I do policy, health policy for a living, the question to me is how do you construct a policy that's robust to different parameters in, in the scientific uncertainty? So, so like if you have a fragile policy, for a policy that depends on a particular set of scientific uh, parameters to be a particular way, well, that, uh, that, that's a policy that if the parameters turn out to not to be that way, it would, you'll, you'll have made an enormous mistake. I think the lockdowns are like that. The lockdowns depend on a very particular set of scientific parameters being a particular way that turned out not to be that way. Right, so the, the, the main one is the, the, the harms of the lockdown, which hopefully we get to talk mm. about some. Mm. Um, but also the, 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 the age, age structure of the population. The focus protection idea is robust works under a very broad range of scientific parameters um, about the disease. The thing I still don't get, and maybe I'm just being stupid here, but what happens to all of those vulnerable people in your scheme? I mean, would they be let out? So when does Granny get to leave hospital? So Granny, when Granny can leave hospital whenever she wants. But like then she's, she's going back into yeah, so, a world so the swimming like, so, with these different variants. All right, so here's the question. So here, but let's, let's take a very particular set of parameters. All right, so that we're, we're like we can go with your, and I don't know the parameters are right, but like let's say let's say if the parameters are uh, each day, each day there's a new variant, you evade focus protection, um, you you have uh, you, you and and so like the the it, it it takes a very very long time to reach endemic equilibrium, right? That's that's the that's the world you're trying to get me to think about, right? I mean that's I think that's that's a completely reasonable question. I don't think that's the world we live in, but it's a personal, perfectly reasonable thing to think about. In in that setting. Um, if Granny wants to be protected, if my grand, if my mom wants to be, eight-year-old mom wants to be protected, she has to take special. And 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 we're living in a world without a vaccine, so she can't just take the vaccine and get protected, right? That's that's the hypothetical mm, right. um, uh, So in that world, she's going to have to be careful for a very long time, uh, and she's going to have to make acute decisions about do I hug my do I do I visit with my grandkids? Do I really want to spend years without seeing them grow? versus the risk of, of the disease. I mean, I think that's, it would make the life of old people, if that, those set of scientific parameters are, are there, difficult. So you'd see that group would just shrink naturally because people well, would Well, I mean, the, just people I think would make the trade-offs and say, well, I, you know, I, I, I have only a few years to live, I want to see my, I, that's what I would do, I would want to see my grandkids. At, in that same world, with a lockdown, 
they don't see their grandkids either. Right? In a, in a world in a world with a lockdown, they're, they're separated. And my children don't have to go to school. In the focus protection world, again, with the, with the parameters you're talking about, um, my children get to go to school and lead a more or less, I mean, it won't be perfectly normal because that's a more, more bleak world than we actually live in, but they would be much more, more normal than what a lockdown would allow. Um, so, the, so the question is, to me, is the marginal difference between those two policies. We, we have come to think about lockdown as if it were the only possible thing to do. It's a natural, of course, you have no choice to do this. Um, but that's not true. You have to make decisions based on what are what on the margins is alternatively possible, and and that may that requires imagination, right? And, and requires care about thinking about different people in different parts of society and the risks they face, combined with the values they have and the scientific parameters about the disease spread and all these other things. Okay, so let's bring vaccines back into this equation, right? At the time when they were first discovered or the tests were done, I remember the story very much being that vaccines were going to be the end. Yeah. We should extend the lockdown until the vaccine arrives and that's going to be the end of the story. It now seems from data that's coming out of Israel and even in places like the UK and the US that, as you mentioned, the number of breakthrough cases is perhaps greater than people had envisaged, at least if my memory is, is correct. What does that do? I mean, I think Undoubtedly, that causes big problems for the sort of zero COVID end of the argument because it makes that very hard to achieve. But doesn't it also cause problems for the Great Barrington end of the argument? I don't think so. Zero COVID is fragile to whether the vaccines stop disease spread. The Great Barrington approach, the focus protection approach is not. You have to make a distinction here between uh, immunity that stops, that neutralizes the disease altogether Right? Many vaccines are like this. You get, I, th I think the measles vaccine is a good example. If you get the measles vaccine, it neutralizes. You're not going to spread the measles. Right? It's a fantastic vaccine. I think the smallpox vaccine was also like this, um, although I'm not an expert in that. Uh, so uh, on the other hand, this vaccine, I thought, I hoped it would be like this, but it turns out it wasn't. Like in January, if you'd asked me if we had the scenario in January of this year, I would have said, yeah, it seems like it stops the disease spread. Um, but now I think we know that it doesn't. In December, Sunetra Gupta and I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal where we argued we could use the vaccine for focus protection. Now, in fact, we started our conversation that way, right? Uh, the key to that is that the vaccine turns the disease from something quite deadly in the vulnerable into something much more manageable. That's not going to kill, it's much less likely to kill you. It turns the disease from something that's quite deadly in the vulnerable to something that's not like, much less likely to kill you. Um, but that's what focus protection is. Focus protection is take the, the segment of the population that's vulnerable and protect them against a severe outcome from the disease. Not necessarily only so, all exposure to the disease. So what are the implications policy-wise of that new development then? Does that mean that everybody is going to get it? Do you think? I mean, to get, sketch for us the new future now that we know what the vaccines are really like. Right, so I can, I can see two futures. And I think societies have to choose, and I, I can tell you my preference, and probably you can probably guess my preference, um, but, I, but here's what I see the debate shaping up to be. Uh, in, in one future, older people, other people with chronic conditions that are, would have a severe outcome disease, get the vaccine, 
It's happened in the UK, it's happened in the United States, it's happened in Israel, it's happened in Iceland, it's happened in many, many other places. Um, it happened in Sweden. Uh, and uh, they're, they're protected from the disease, from the severe outcome from the disease. You then open, let society go. And it, COVID becomes, rather than a all-consuming thing that you have to reorganize society around, it becomes another of the 200 pathogens that affect humans that we have to think about, you know, we, physicians have to think about carefully and, how, and learning how to manage. We do scientific research to better treat, you know. So in this scheme, vaccines. younger people don't even take the vaccine? They don't have to. I mean, they can. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not against it, uh, but I, don't, I think, you know, it's a, it's a normal thing where you compare the potential harms of the vaccine versus the potential benefits. Whether they take it or not doesn't affect really anybody else. It's a personal decision because it doesn't stop disease spread. Right. So just to quiz you on this, where do you draw that line? I mean, if, if you're the chief medical officer, what age do you stop giving people vaccines or offering people vaccines? I, actually, I, I think what the, what the UK did, the JVCI did, is actually make, much, makes a lot of sense. I think the, from what I've seen of the evidence, the side effect profile for vaccines in young people is, is worse than I would have expected. Like maybe one in five or one in 10,000 of young, young men or young boys get uh, myocarditis that's too high for the, the protection they get from, from as far as I'm concerned. So I think that's a reasonable decision. Uh, the U.S. has been much... But what, what is that decision? What age, what age do you cut it off? You could argue anywhere between 18 and 30 to me, and I'd be fine. I mean, I, it, it would depend on evidence that I don't, I don't, I'm not deeply familiar with. So, but I mean, it could be anywhere in there. It'd be okay as far as I'm concerned. Um, but, but there would be some age, but where you'd say below it, below it, it doesn't make any sense. Um, because it would depend on the side effects. First, it's become a. It so you don't think we should be vaccinating minors? I don't think so. It's not. There's no purpose in it, right? It doesn't stop disease spread, so you're not protecting the teachers or, or whatnot. And uh, my reading of the evidence thus far is for the for the for minors, it doesn't. It's the the risk profile is not good enough with this vaccine to say, okay, let's do this. So if you, I don't know how old your kids are, but if you had a 18-year-old or a 22-year-old So my 20-year-old, she can decide for herself. My 14 and 16-year-old boys, I, I don't, I'd rather not at this point until they have a better vaccine. Future number two. The future, future number two, uh, we decide that um, we are going to continue to try to stop the spread of this disease. But we don't have any technology to do it other than lockdown. And so we turn our society into this, what, what I view as essentially a dystopian nightmare. You uh, designate a certain class of people as clean, vaccinated, who are allowed to enter any shop they want. They can fly. They can participate in society. Another underclass of people, generally the poor, generally the working class people who are vaccine hesitant, they're, not, they're no longer allowed to participate in society as normal. Uh, we, we continue to, to restrict our children's activities at, at, in schools. We continue to spew fear through the, the airwaves so that everyone is scared about COVID. We continue to uh, tell people in public health to essentially treat others as, a, as, you know, as uh, dangerous infection bags of germs, if you will, right? It's like a, it, rather, rather than fellow human beings that we need to care about and love. It sounds to me, and I, I don't know if you agree with this, that even those experts who were really pushing for a zero COVID or a maximum eliminations type strategy now that vaccines have been rolled out in countries like the UK, they are softening their position. You get a lot of people. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, Neil Ferguson is one of them. We've actually booked, we're going to talk to him uh, in September. But, you know, they're now saying, okay, we've sort of done everything we can do. Elimination isn't possible. So maybe that dystopia you paint is sort of vanished. I don't think, I think most people don't want that dystopia. I think it takes a very particular kind of person that's gripped in fear about this one disease that would, would want that second future. And I don't think they're bad people. I just think that they are, they are so scared about a, about a single disease that they're, they, they, that they're blind to all of the other things that are important to human life. And, uh, you know, I think that in many, in, so I, I, but I think as people start to say, okay, well, can we achieve the elimination of the disease, and they, answer, and, they, and they become to the obvious conclusion that we cannot, that they, they start to change their minds. They'd like to, they wake up and remember what, what, what's important to them in life. I'll welcome them with open arms when they, when, they, when they come to that conclusion, because I think that's the right conclusion. I want to be friends with them. I mean, I don't, I don't, it's, this is, it's become, too, it's, all this division has been, is unnecessary, and it's actually, it's hurt science, it's hurt public health. We need to like, it's actually, it's undermined the trust of the public in public health. Um, and that we in public health need to work to you know, sort of work through those divisions and, 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 and uh, sort of you know, work towards some, some sort of like, I mean, essentially a peace treaty where we can work together. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about the politics of this now. I mean, your Great Barrington Declaration was the start of a huge political row. It came in the middle of a huge political row. Are there things you now regret about the way you put out that policy. I mean, it was, you went to this fancy house in New England, you were seen toasting champagne in the accompanying photographs. It was hosted by a 
libertarian think tank, or they may not like that description, but it's roughly the AIER. And so people were able to draw lines between that and various sources of funding they had, including from something from the Koch brothers, etc. And a story was able to be built that you were in some way a kind of puppet or an arm of right-wing libertarian interests. Did you, did you make a mistake with that? I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, it's funny because like I've, I've taken no, I've never taken any money from Koch brothers. I've, I don't, I almost all my money that I've had in my career has come from the NIH actually, or from the, or the FDA or the, the, you know, the federal government, the U S federal government. Um, I, I think that, uh, so first let me, let me, you, let me, I'll try to answer it in the spirit of what you're asking in a second, but I just, let, let me just make a personal point about this first. So, um, I think that if if a uh, if somebody is arguing uh, against a policy idea or a set of scientific hypotheses in this ad hominem way, that is a that is a position of weakness that they're arguing for, right? Because if you really want to engage with somebody, you have to engage with their ideas, and uh, I think that uh, it's very easy for um, uh, for for the press or others to look and see that fight. That's nasty. Okay, they, this 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 group that's making ad hominem accusations against another group, and just report the ad hominem, as opposed to reporting the fact that the about the actual substance of the disagreement, like is focus protection possible? Like all the stuff that we've been talking about now, that should have been the discussion, in in a responsible press, in a responsible science, in responsible public health, that should have been the focus, and you could have had this like noise at the side that should just be dismissed, because ad hominem doesn't actually. Doesn't advance anything, right? Um, but did you make it easier by right. framing so, like, it? Like, that I told way. you, I get to the, the substance of this. I, I mean, I was honestly, I was naive. I, I, I have spent my career in academics. I have not spent my career in politics, uh, and I, 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 frankly, I'd much rather spend my career. In, it's like just more fun for me, like to be able to think about ideas and test them and see if. I, I mean, I like being corrected by data and changing my mind. That's actually fun for me, believe it or not. Um, so I don't. I, th- I think. Um, in that sense, I was naive. I didn't. I didn't know that, that that doing that, people would use the ad hominem attacks against me. I did. I worked on the, the Santa Clara syrup problem study when I was even more naive. Uh, so I and there was a furious counterattack on that. Uh, again, again with this ad hominem sort of overlay, that that that, that shocked me. So I, I mean, I guess it didn't fully surprise me that it happened, but I still was surprised by that. I expected more serious engagement by serious people on it. Is it not a bit of a stretch to say that it's not political? Because actually, what this oh, is—I'm no, is sorry, I didn't mean to say it's not political. It's obviously political, right? So, and and I, I, I was trying to say is like I was naive about how. Political. No, but I guess what I mean is yes, the attacks were political, but the policy is also—you're in politics now. Yes, is what I'm it's saying. policy, right? It's because policy, it, absolutely. And it's more than policy because, and it's not health. It is this public health. Uh, discipline, which is sort of political because it's about how you arrange society to mitigate against different threats, how much of a role the state should have, how much an individual's right to liberty is sacred. These are political values. Absolutely. So you are in politics at this point. Yeah, and it's in the middle of a of a nasty presidential election too, right? So like that, those, all, all of that, you're absolutely right, is political. I, I should have known how political it was. And if I were a very different person with a very different background and knowledge, I would have better known how to like navigate that. Um, what motivated me to to participate in this was, and we wrote it the very first words of the Great Bank Declaration. We had grave concerns about the policy. The policy we put forward 
although it seemed shocking to many, was actually consistent with other pre-pandemic plans that I was aware of. It wasn't, a it's in fact, a hundred years of pandemics have been managed that way, right? You identify the vulnerable, work to protect them, treat them, and the rest of society, you don't panic, you keep, you keep uh, calm, right? And what's the, what's the you, you all in the UK have Keep this, calm and carry on. That's right, exactly, right? So, I mean, that was the, that was the idea. I, I, so, um, so you were surprised by the strength of the reaction? Yeah, no, but now I should, I should, I should say, I, I actually, I should be careful about that because that's not, that's not strictly true. I, I anticipated a strong reaction, and we did it in a very a way that was impossible to ignore, for a reason because the the discussion wasn't permitting that kind of, of the, the the space in in the public discussion wasn't permitting those kinds of ideas, even though I knew from. People, many, many people that have contacted me and I talked with that wanted that discussion opened. In fact, the, if you go back to October of last year, um, there was this like sense that uh, if you were against the lockdown, you were saying something dangerous. And people have told me that, right? That, that, that in fact, I'm sure that that's, that's been at the core of a lot of like of this, this sort of deplatforming effort. Um, but I knew that first it wasn't dangerous from a public health point of view, and it, it, certainly it's worth discussing from a public health point of view. Um, and then second, that uh, it's not healthy for science to not have, uh, to, to, to be in a situation where scientists and public health people are afraid to stick their head up to say what they think. Um, so if I can, if I can, so let me, let me, I have a theory about this. So, so and, and, and uh, that, that I think is, well, is somewhat neutral that explains this. Um, you have, in, on the one hand, a norm in public health that says uh, you, there needs to be some unanimity of messaging in order to be effective, right? So uh, Jay gets up, Stanford professor says, smoking is good for you. Well, that is a dangerous thing for me to do, right? I, I should not be using my authority to say something that is so contrary to the scientific evidence that harms the public by my saying that. Smoking is terrible for you. Should not do it, right? That's 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 my that's a responsibility I have if I'm in public health to reflect that kind of consensus about a, a basic scientific fact. Um, and so, if I get up and say something so contrary to science, it is actually dangerous, and it is a correct norm to have in public health that unanimity messaging around those kinds of things. Um, at the same time, in science itself, there's just, the norm is a freewheeling discussion. I have a hypothesis, you, A, you have another hypothesis, B, it conflicts, we, we, we agree on some, uh, some test of it in the data, B turns out to be right, I say, damn it, you, okay, well, I'll take you to dinner, and then, then I have another hypothesis that, that, that we challenge each other, and then we go another, and we keep doing data, and there's this like freewheeling discussion where we interact with data and we decide who's right over time, right? That's, that's the norm, that's the correct norm in science itself, not unanimity messaging. The ethical basis for public health's enforcement of unanimity of messaging is consensus inside science. And I know for a fact that there was not consensus. And yet there were many, many people afraid to speak up and say, look, this hypothesis doesn't make sense. I, I, I know that because both before and after, especially after the Great Pandemic Question, I've gotten countless people writing to me saying, thank you for, for, for speaking up and letting me say my, say my piece.
So you think what happened is that the kind of illiberal trends in politics have now kind of taken over the, this scientific question. Yeah, it did. I mean, I think it definitely did. I think it, it, it uh, Martin Kulldorff wrote a tweet uh, just, I think just before the Great Banking Declaration where he, where he declared the end of the Age of Enlightenment. Um, I mean, it's felt like that at times. Right, the the the, the I, we talked at the beginning about about Stanford. Uh, you know, the the, the uh, Stanford motto is "Let the winds of freedom blow." It has felt like it hasn't blown at the university and in science generally, uh, and that is something we should resist with all our all our strength. I just want to come back on this politics question because I've spoken to a, quite a long list now of experts and scientists on this pandemic. A lot of people have strong views, and I roughly get a sense that those people who are in favor of bigger restrictions tend to be more progressive, and those people who are in favor of fewer restrictions tend to be a little bit more center-right or on the libertarian end, which would make a whole lot of sense because their values, they are human beings, of course they have political viewpoints. So my question to you is, how can you separate? If you consider yourself, I don't know whether you consider yourself slightly on the center-right or not, but how do you separate your own politics from your policy recommendation? And maybe it's, you shouldn't bother. It's, maybe it's you should funny. just say, this is what I think. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think all of our, uh, you know, you saw like the idea of following the science as if it were some like a completely alien thing that we just have to point ourselves toward. Um, I mean, in, as you, you said, like it's a complicated thing that involves society. It's going to involve values. It's something we talked about, right? It's a, there's scientific parameters as values people have. It's always going to be political in that sense. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I considered myself on the center right before the before the pandemic, but I never held my politics all that tightly. But do you feel those uh, values influenced your scientific I think, recommendation? I, I honestly don't think so. Like, I th- so just to give you some evidence of this, I, you 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 posed a uh, you posed it a particular way, saying okay, the progressives tended to be more in favor of restrictions, and 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 uh, people on the right tend to be not. On the other hand, um, you had a right wing government in the UK imposing very sharp lockdowns. You had uh, a right-wing government in the United States impose, uh, from March of 2020 imposing a lockdown. I mean, there, it's, it's President Trump that's responsible for the, for the, the American lockdown. And um, well, both of those governments are accused of not having done enough and having been too slow. And the idea is their sort of libertarian leanings meant yeah. that they didn't impose enough lockdowns or they and, weren't and, quick enough. And in Sweden, you had, you had a, you know, a government that's center left, I think. That's right. That that didn't impose a lockdown, right? So it's the, the politics of this are very, very funny. Um, if I, I like, I find myself in a circle where there's many people I think are on the left, as best I can tell, that are anti-lockdown. They're deeply offended by the 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 uh, the, the harm that the lockdowns have done to the poor, the working class, and the vulnerable. I share those values. If those are the values of the left, then count me in. Right. I don't. I don't. I don't care about the label. I don't care about the, poli- the the actual which political party it is. I think that is the. That's what has united the sort of anti, the anti-lockdown, the lockdown skeptic movement, not the pre-existing political labels. Um, on, on the you know, on the other hand, um, on the libertarian side, I see a divide. AIER was actually kind of unique among the libertarians in in opposing lockdown. Right, you had the Cato Institute. Actually, I think has mostly been in favor of the lockdowns. Like, right, you have Sam Bowman on the on the on the UK who's in favor. I think Gosling's libertarian is in favor of lockdowns. So it's not. I don't think it's cleanly left right. 
haven't you, even if it's not in the left-right sense, become a politician of a kind in the past year and a half? Because you also have formed something equivalent to a party with this Great Barrington group. You have a position, you've set out your stall, and you now need to defend it. Whatever the new evidence, whatever the trends, it feels like you and Sunetra Gupta and Martin Kuldorf are out there whenever there's bad news about lockdowns and whenever there's good news in your favor, you're, you're there pushing the case. So you've almost become a political like a brand. Yeah, I, I hope that's not the case. I mean, I, I, if that's true, I'm a, I'm a particularly bad politician, uh, unable to gain popularity with the people. I mean, I just, you know, I just, I, I, I still think of myself as a, as a scientist, like I, I, it's, as someone who's wants to have my mind changed by the data. Um, I think the, the, the reason you might have that perception is because the policy that we adopt, that we, we pushed for, that we argued for, is, is not fragile, it's robust to a wide range of data. And so like, for, I gave you an example of this already, like I, the, 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 uh, I thought in January that vaccines stop disease spread. I've changed my mind based on what the data say. The policy stays is actually robust. To that. Is that the only example? I mean, if you're oh, if you're putting yourself out now as someone who has changed their mind yeah. during the course of the pandemic, putting I've got to out, like, that's always the case. <laughs> I've got to ask you the politician yeah. question. You know, where where have you been wrong, and uh, where have you changed your mind? Yeah, so like I give you I give you one example. I'm very early. I did not think the vaccines would arrive in in twelve months, or actually not. I guess it really arrived in nine months. I was. Very pleasantly shocked and surprised. If you asked me in March of 2020, it, can there be a vaccine? I think someone actually did. Is, can, there, can there be a vaccine? I would have said, and I did say that it's very unlikely. There's no coronavirus vaccines. It's been difficult to, to, to produce one. I don't see how it's possible. So, I mean, I, I, you have to change your mind in the, in the, in the face of such, such, such amazing. So, had you known so, that the vaccines would come so quickly, would you have had a different view of the lockdowns? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I mean, and, and in fact, in fact, that's one of the things I've worried about, right? So, if, um, but I think I still would have had the same view of lockdowns. The the problem is that they're so. I, in my view of lockdowns, is they're extremely, extremely harmful to the poor and vulnerable. The poor, the the, the vulnerable, and not in the sense of coronavirus vulnerable, but vulnerable just on the edges of society, vulnerable. Um, uh, and and certainly, and certainly to children. I, I think, for instance, I still would have been in favor of keeping schools open. Right, I would still would have been in favor of. Uh, now, I might have been more in favor of of like m- more restrictive things for for older people, um, j- just because you know. Let's just wait until we can find something. That that that's. I might have been more in favor of that. It's, po- it's quite possible. It's hard to go back and, and say, it, but I, I do think that um, you have to temper your enthusiasm for that against the harms of the lockdown. Like if I like how, can, would I be in favor of a lockdown in in um, in Peru? Waiting for the for the vaccine, I, I think that turned out to be an enormous error. Like huge numbers of poor people in Peru died essentially from lockdown. So looking back over this pandemic, and it's not over yet, but we hope that it is nearing its final stages. You then feel like you've been vindicated, is that right? Because your opponents also tell us they feel they've been vindicated. That you know, lockdowns have been incredibly effective, and the countries that had the strictest measures have the best outcomes. Blah blah. And then we come and talk to you, and you say you've been vindicated. How are we supposed to know? I, I mean, I think you can. You can. Um, uh, I do think I've been. We've been vindicated. I do think the focus practice was the right strategy. I think the lockdowns were a, 
I call it the single biggest mistake in public health history. I still believe that. Um, I don't see how uh, anyone can look at lockdowns and say they were successful policy. We've had lockdowns in country after country after country. Uh, would you call a lockdown success in the UK? Would you call them a lockdown in uh, the success in Peru? The lockdown in India was was it a success? The lockdowns in uh, in the United States? I don't think by any measure you could call them a success. Right? We've had enormous COVID deaths despite the lockdowns, and you can say, okay, we didn't lock down hard enough, but that's a constraint that you, the lockdown proponents have to cope with. And the fact that society could not meet their high standard of what a lockdown ought to look like is, is a criticism of them, not of the, of the, the uh, I mean, so it's just, I, I think that that's like, you, you have some utopian policy that is very fragile, that, that, that doesn't, when, as soon as you meet some political opposition, people want to enact it. Well, you have to be realistic, right? That's, that's a criticism of the person proposing the policy. Um, it, it, Do you feel you've quantified that? I mean, that's no. one of the things you're working on, I know, yeah. but who has proven the harms of lockdowns? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think uh, there's some harms of the lockdown that are already, I mean, we've seen that, seen them already. So, like, I think I just saw a study that uh, one in four young, uh, young children and young adults experienced depression or anxiety during the, during, during the, lo- the, 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 the lockdowns of last year. Um, one in four, in June of last year, one in four according to the CDC study in the United States, one in four young adults had seriously considered suicide, right? So the mental health of the lockdowns, I think are starting to, the evidence is starting to develop around that. Uh, I, I told you about the studies uh, in, uh, in developing, the developing world where you have enormous number of people newly thrown into poverty, deep poverty, or uh, new, newly, you know, so newly food insecure, or, or, or actually actively starving. Disruptions in medical care that have harmed the you know, people with uh, with tuberculosis, with HIV, with with malaria, uh, you know, just I mean, I think those kinds of harms are already established. Uh, the hard part about quantifying it's so easy to say X COVID deaths, you know, essentially like a unidimensional thing that, that that stands in for so much about what what COVID and it's just deadly disease for for a certain class of people. It absolutely is. Um, on the other hand, the harms of the lockdown are extremely multidimensional. To order, in order to, it's not possible to reduce to a single number. A child who skips a year of school, in effect, that the consequences will last a lifetime. They'll be poorer, less healthy, live less long, and we're just starting to get come to terms with that. A lot of the harms of the lockdown will come in the form of of mitigation measures to try to address. The problem. So, is your claim now in August of 2021 that purely on the dimension of deaths, lockdowns have killed more people than they have saved, or do you think they have still net saved people, but there will be other dimensions in coming decades that will change that equation? I mean, I, I wrote a paper with uh, with John Ioannidis and Aaron Ben David uh, where we tried to assess one aspect of lockdown: the mandatory business closures and the the the, uh, the um, from, from the early, early part of the epidemic, where we used uh, Sweden and South Korea, two places that didn't have business closures and other, other lockdown, the, the mandatory lockdown measures against other countries that did. And there you can, it's very difficult to find any evidence that, that it had any effect on cases at all in the early, early days of the epidemic, when you have a, a, a control group, if you will. It's, a notor- it's a, gonna be a very difficult question to answer how many lack, lives lockdowns actually saved. A lot of the work that's been done is based on 
uh, using models as counterfactuals. But the models themselves are not reality. The models themselves are hypotheses about reality. And so you can't turn around and say, well, the model says there would have been X million deaths. We only had you know, 100,000, therefore we saved X million minus 100,000 people. That, that's just not, that's not good. So science. are you saying you think lockdowns have killed more people than they've saved yes, I think, already? Yeah, I, think that, I think that's actually, actually true. I do think that there's going to be a debate about that in the literature. Uh, it already is. It's already happening. But in my, in my view of the literature as of right now, the answer is yes. Let's end by looking ahead to the future. Do you now think that these kind of extreme NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions like lockdowns, are now just going to be part of the course. They're going to be an accepted part of public health and that they're going to happen year after year? Or what do you think we're facing as a new yeah. reality? Well, I think, I mean, remember we talked about those two futures. Mm. Well, the, 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 the future you just described is that second future of, of essentially a dystopian society where at any moment your life can be dis thrown over and uh, put on hold until, 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 we get a, until we get a hold of the situation. A new, a new threat comes along. I think that, uh, is a, 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 that puts too much power in, in the hands of people that it's very clear to me do not have a very broad notion of what society is for. Have a very narrow notion of what what uh, well-being of people is about, right? So, the, the UN um, envisions the the flourishing of people to be much more than just infection control. And if we reorganize society around only infection control, I think uh, we will lead much poorer, restricted lives that, in the long run, will make us essentially less human. Um, so I, I hope the answer is no to that. I think that lockdowns should not belong in our toolkit, except under the most extraordinary of circumstances. And, then that, that the, and those circumstances were not met during this epidemic, as far as I'm concerned. So do you think you're winning this argument? Do you think that Western countries are going to revert to the world you've talked about before? Or do you think this is a new reality? I, I think we're winning. I, I, okay, winning versus will win. Okay, so I, I do think that uh, the, uh, the world is moving in the direction that I'm arguing for, against NPIs as a standard part of the toolkit. Many parts of the Western world, uh, just, I'm just take the United States who I shouldn't know best, I think um, Florida is a good example of this. They're never going to adopt another lockdown. They just aren't. They put in place... Things aren't going so well in Florida though, are they? They're going all right. I mean, they're, they, they, what, they're, what you're seeing is a huge increase in cases, just like you had in the UK. And hospitalization. And hospitalization, but not deaths. You have you got like 80% reduction relative to what, uh, what, what was... I mean, this is a disease that's not gone. It's not, the, again, zero... Endemic equilibrium is not a synonym for zero COVID. It's a disease we have to cope with. But their kids are going to be in school, right? They're, 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 businesses are, are, are operating. People, young people are, are dating one another. I mean, like the, the, the fear is not in the land, right? It's, um, so you have to, I think the, uh, the it, it's, it's not that COVID is, is, a, is a nothing. It's, it is a real, real important thing that we need to take into account. Florida society has changed because of COVID. But do you think we will gradually just sort of get used to it? Yeah, I think so. Like just like any other danger, you eventually get used to it. And like you know, you read stories about about horrible wars, and people are just it just it, it becomes like a thing that you, I think humans are capable of getting used to so many horrible things. Um, and I think uh, I mean, we got used to lockdown. 
at least some of us did, I guess. I, I, I can't say I got missed to lockdown personally, but um, I do. Th I think um, I, I think as a species, we are adaptable that way, but that doesn't mean we flourish that way. Um, COVID is going to join the 200 other pathogens that afflict humans, and we will learn to live with it. Jay Batikaria, thanks for coming in. Thank you, Freddie. That was Professor Jay Batikaria here in London, talking to us about his experience of the past year and a half during the pandemic and what he suspects will be coming next. You heard him there, he thinks he's winning the argument or is about to win the argument. We shall see. Thanks to him for joining and thanks to you, this is Unheard. Hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. ACAST anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer meget nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmangel.